0: Good morning. All right, welcome to Be Free. My name is Ben. I'm the pastor here. We are a Christ-centered family that glorifies God by loving Him, loving others, and making disciples. It's what we do. It's who we are, and it's how we do it. Flip those. Uh, so good morning. Uh, go ahead, open up in your Bibles, Genesis chapter 4. That's where we are today. We are out of the garden and continuing on into the maybe narrative proper um, of Genesis. Um, So growing up, I read the Bible, uh, read, watched, I watched a movie, not read the Bible, I watched a movie uh, that we all know and many of us love called Mary Poppins. Now, what's interesting about Mary Poppins, if if you've watched it, is that the main, the title of the movie gets its name from one character in the movie, as you know, and it's a character that you see most often. Uh, She gets the most screen time, She's the most mer- memorable character, character who does the most memorable things. But recently, growing up, watching the movie again, now with my kids, what I've realized is something that I didn't catch growing up, is that Mary Poppins, actually, even though the whole movie is about her, she's not the main character. Rewatching the movie Mary Poppins, what we realize is that the movie isn't really about her. She's not the person in the center of the of the narrative in the center of the story. Actually, I would argue that the main character of Mary Poppins is actually George Banks. George Banks is at the center of the story, the father, because though he gets far less screen time, he's the one who's actually at the center of the plot. If you watch it again, what you'd realize is that the plot revolves around him. It's, it's his character development. That's the real goal of the movie. That's at the heart of the story. It's, it's him as the leader of the household, and he has to learn that flying a kite is a worthy waste of time for him. That flying a kite, spending that time with his kids, is, is worth an afternoon. He has to learn that his job at the bank isn't worth toppins in comparison to his relationship with his kids. That's what the movie is actually about. It's actually a commentary on the roles of men and women, uh, historically, in Edwardian England, this season where the women were—like, think about the mother of the family, the suffragette—was going out to fight for the vote, while the father was learning, oh, wait a second, I have responsibilities in my home. It was a commentary in that very specific time in history, and so the main character— is George Banks. And if you understand or misunderstand who the main character of Mary Poppins is, you kind of miss the point of the whole story. And the interesting thing is that when we open our Bibles, the same thing is true. If you misunderstand who the main character is, you miss the point of the whole story. We open up our Bibles, specifically the Old Testament, specifically these stories like Daniel and the lion's den, Ruth and Naomi, David and Goliath, Esther and the king. We look at these stories, but Daniel, Ruth, David, and Esther, they're not actually the main characters of the story. Yes, they get the most screen time in their respective stories, and they do a lot of memorable things, but they're not at the center of the plot. The main character of the Bible is the one who makes the world, is redeeming the world, and who will one day restore the world. The main character of the Bible is not Daniel, Ruth, David, or Esther. The main character of the Bible is not you or me. The main character of the Bible is Yahweh, Elohim, the God of Israel, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And so in Genesis chapter 4, as we move further into the plot line of the book of narrative, multiple characters are going to start rising. Characters are going to multiply. And if we're going to get the point of these stories, then we have to remember who the main character actually is. So let's pray, and we'll dive into the plot Cain and Abel. Heavenly Father, this story is about you. This book is a story of not just who you are, but what you are doing and what you have done. Also a story of what you will do, Lord. We know this is your world. You made it. You're sovereign over it. We are a big God church because we know that you are a big God over all things, and if that we're going to understand anything, we have to understand it in light of who you are. And so, Father, thank you in your mercy for revealing to us just that, your nature, God. And we pray that even as we look at this story of, of, of uh, brokenness and depravity in this world, it would show us just a little bit more clearly who you are, Lord. That it would reach not just our heads, but our hearts and our hands, too. We love you, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So as God puts his finishing touch on creation, he breathes life into men and women, and he warns them that death will come if they eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Right there from the beginning, life given, death warned. Men and women, they ate, and on that day, they began to die. They were separated from the tree of life, separated from the one who breathed life into them. Death is now a reality. Every human being is on a journey from dust to dust, as we saw in the curses. And yet men and women still have a duty to multiply life, to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth. That job wasn't taken away at the fall. That's still their job. And that's why as we come to the end of Genesis chapter 3 last week, at the fall, we read in Genesis 3.20 that the man called his wife's name Eve, which sounds like the Hebrew word for life giver, because she was the mother of all living, life, death, life, death. And this theme of life and death continues. Because as we turn to Genesis chapter 4, Eve, the life giver, does just that. She gives life. So join me, verse 1 and 2. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel, the second born, was a keeper of sheep, and Cain, the firstborn, A worker of the ground. So, Eve, the life giver, she's living up to her name. She has gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And every baby is a miracle to its adoring parents, but this one is especially good news. Why is Cain, why is the birth of Cain, especially good news for us as we read the Bible? Well, it has everything to do with the promise that God made to Eve, actually, to the serpent, but in Genesis 3, 15. God said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And so, in Adam and Eve's mind, this baby is born. And you can imagine, they're thinking, is this the offspring? Is this the one who's going to come and crush the snake? I mean, there's hope. There's hope in this first baby born in history because it might just be that this is the one who's going to fulfill God's promise. It might just be that this is going to be the destroyer of the deceiver. And, I mean, every single parent has hopes and dreams for their kids. But, I mean, these are some big hopes and dreams that Adam and Eve are putting on Cain. And maybe Abel. Who knows? They're thinking, yeah, we want him to have a happy childhood, get education, good job. Maybe defeat Satan if he gets around to it. No pressure. Some big shoes to fill, or big, big expectations to live up to. But as these boys grew up, they followed in their parents' footsteps, right? Uh, Cain probably trained at his father's side. He worked the ground. And Abel actually picked up the family business of having dominion over the creatures. He, he cared for the livestock of the field. So join me in verse 3. We'll see what happens next. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of fruit from the ground, And Abel also brought of the firstborn of the flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Now, Cain is angry. God asks him, why are you angry? And we might ask God, God, why aren't you satisfied? I mean, after all, if you think about it, Cain brought the fruit of his labor. Abel just brought the fruit of his labor. Cain brought... Uh, fruit of the ground. Abel bought the first fruit of the flock, first fruit of the flock, the uh, the the fat portions. So why is it that God accepted Abel's offering, but He didn't accept Cain's offering? What gives? It hardly seems fair. What's the difference? I mean, this is something that scholars have argued and wrestled with for a long, long time. So I'm not going to say I know once and for all the absolute reason. The Bible doesn't tell us crystal clear what it is about these different offerings and why God accepts one and not the other. But I do have a guess. I think that we get a hint when we look at the text. I don't think it is that God just likes lamb chops over fruit salad. I don't think that's the difference between these two offerings. I think there's something more Going on here because what do we actually see here? The text says that Cain offered the fruit of the ground and Abel offered the firstborn of his flock its fat portions. In other words, Abel offered the best of the best. The sacrifice that Abel made actually cost him something. It was to him a sacrifice. This is what pastor and author Ray Ortland says about this. He says that Cain threw a tip on the table but Abel gave his best. Cain gave out of his income, but Abel gave out out of his capital. Cain made a gesture of thanks, but Abel risked his future growth potential by giving God some of his breeding stock. In other words, the difference between these two men was tokenism versus love. And God took that seriously. And so Abel's sacrifice— It came from the heart. It wasn't him just checking a box. He actually wanted to give God radical surrender, radical sacrifice, to give God true, heartfelt worship. And so here's the key. Listen closely. The type of sacrificial worship that Abel offered God would have only made sense if he believed that God was better than the thing that he was sacrificing. Does that make sense? Let me read it again. The type of sacrificial worship that Abel offered God would have only made sense if he believed that God was actually better than the thing that he was sacrificing. And when we come to the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, he calls us to make an even greater sacrifice. He says in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, your bodies, your life, yourself, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual sacrifice worship. And again, here it's true that sacrificial worship like this, it only makes sense if we believe that God is better than the thing we're sacrificing. We won't lay down our lives for him if we don't actually think that, it, that having him is better than life itself. But it's also true in the minutia, right? That if we think our jobs are better than God, then we won't lay down our jobs when we're called to compromise at work. If we truly, in our heart of hearts, think that our sexual gratification is better than God, then we won't lay down our sexual gratification, our our sexual desires, in submission to Him when desire calls. If we think our comfort or our security is better than God, then we won't lay down our bank accounts for Him, putting them in His hands. This type of sacrificial worship, it only makes sense if we actually believe that God is better than the thing we're sacrificing. And so radical sacrifice is what we're called to. Radical sacrifice is what Abel gives. He truly believes God is better. And I think that is what made Abel's sacrifice pleasing to God. That it came from a heart of genuine affection and genuine worship. And our God, who sees the heart and the mind, Jeremiah 20:12), and who weighs the heart, Proverbs 21, 2, he took that seriously. And so meanwhile, in Cain's heart, God sees something a little different, right? Not genuine affection and genuine love, but insincerity. Not just that, but there's a darkness lurking there in in Cain's heart, so God sees that, and he warns him. He says, sin is crouching at your door. That's a a vivid image, and he, he might as well have said, if you don't believe me, just ask mom and dad. They know how it works. Sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. What's cool about that is he's saying, yes, sin is knocking, temptation is calling, sin is lurking, But this is a battle, Cain, that you can win. Cain, you've got a choice here, man. Either you rule over sin, or sin is going to rule over you. In the words of John Owen, sin is going to kill you if you don't first kill it. It's crouching, it's knocking. Ball's in your court, Cain. What are you going to do? Let's see what he does. Join me in verse 8. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother, Abel, and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are, you are cursed from the ground, which, was, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. And when you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground and from your face. I shall, sorry, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, not so, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Okay, so, a warning is given. The warning's ignored. God confronts man in his sin. Man denies and deflects his sin. Punishment is given, maybe um, if you want to bring up the replacement, yeah. Let me go through this list again, okay. (laughs) What do we see here? Number one, all right, I'm not going (laughs) to (laughs) move. Yeah, right, I know. Okay, warning is given, the warning's ignored, God confronts man in his sin, man denies and deflects his sin, punishment is given by the ground being cursed and being cast east of Eden. Are we talking about Cain or are we talking about Adam? A warning is given. Warning ignored. God confronts the man in his sin. Man denies and deflects his sin. Punishment is given. The ground is cursed. He's cast east of Eden. It's the same story. The exact same story. In fact, when you look a little bit further, what does God actually say to, to Cain? Well, he says the same words that he said to his to his parents thank you god says to adam where are you and god says to cain where is your brother abel god asks eve what is this that you have done god asks cain here what have you done it's the exact same story The Bible has terrible acoustics. There's echoes everywhere. And every time we find an echo in the Bible, we have to pause and ask ourselves the question, why is that echo there? What is it trying to show us? Check, check. There we go. That's why Dan made me buy a second. So here we are. Awesome. Hmm. And so what is it that this shows us? Why the echo? What's the point? What are we supposed to see by seeing the same thing twice? I'll tell you what I think. I think that what this shows us is that the rebellion of mankind in the garden was not a once-off oopsies. That when Adam and Eve chose to eat of the fruit rather than disobey God, it wasn't a one-time ordeal. In fact, ever since the fall, mankind has been continuing to act like mankind. And this isn't something that we see very clearly in the Old Testament. It is something that we see very clearly in the New Testament. It's that when Adam and Eve sinned, all mankind fell into sin. Something happened in the garden. The fabric of humanity was ripped in two, and that tear has affected every single person who has ever been born from Adam and Eve. We all have something called a sin nature. We're all born with something called original sin. And no one teaches us how to be selfish or or sinful or deceitful or, or vile. Nobody has to. We come to it quite naturally. It's how we were all ba- made. It's in our very nature. And so if you've ever been a single woman saying to yourself there's just not any good men out there. Sorry to break it to you. You're right. There are no good men out there, and frankly, you're no better. <laughs> because we've all sinned. We all have this thing called sin nature, and we live into our nature, every single last one of us. Actually, back in the teacher's lounge, I found this book. It's been back there the last few weeks. I, can't, I couldn't help but share it with you. Um, it's called, No Such Thing as a Bad Kid. And if I'm going to be a little snarky, I would say, no such thing as a good human. There is no such thing as a good human. There never has been and there never will be because every single person born of Adam is born into his sin. It's our family characteristic. We're all just like our daddies. But the thing is, just like Cain, we're not only sinners by nature, we're also sinners by choice. Yeah, we were born with the sin nature and it'd be pretty easy to say like, hey, don't blame me. I just inherited it from my dad. But the reality is, just like Cain, the ball's in our court. Sin is crouching at our doors, just like sin was crouching at Cain's door, and we must rule over it. We're sinners by nature, but we're also sinners by choice. And so we have to turn our attention now to the main character of the Bible, the main character of this story. Because yeah, it's true that mankind just continues to act like mankind, but God continues to act like God. Just like we cannot stop acting out of our own nature, he will not stop living out of his. Just as he gave Adam and Eve Eve a just consequence for their sin, and then in grace promised a deliverer, now here he gives Cain a just consequence for his sin, and then in grace promises protection, doesn't he? It's the same old thing. We read this and we just say, why? Like, what did Cain do to earn that grace? And the answer is nothing. That's what makes it grace. He's a logical in a good way. That's who our God is. That's who he's always going to be. And so we're going to come back to grace here in a minute, of course. But by this point in the story, what we're coming to realize, you might be seeing the problem already, two offspring have been born. Two offspring of Eve, who might just be that serpent crusher, have been born, but so far both of them have fallen. Okay? If there was a scoreboard of Satan versus the seed, uh, it's Satan to us zero. Two down. And so right now, with the scoreboard looking like that, it would start to feel pretty hopeless. But thankfully, as we turn on the verse 17 through 25, I'm going to read through the end. What we're going to see, actually, is that it's not the end of hope, because it's not the end of babies. (laughs) Okay, so join me back in verse 17. Because Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad and Irad fathered Mahujael, and Mahujael fathered Methusheel, and Methusel fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Ada, and the name of the other, Zillah. Ada bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of those who played the lyre and the pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Naamah. And Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge was sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth, also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord." Right. It seems like a whole other story, right? It seems like we've just carried on into a, another section, but what we see here is actually four things, basically. What we see, number one, is that mankind continues to multiply, right? Seven generations of descendants in, Aves, in, in Cain's, primarily Cain's uh, family line. They're being fruitful, and they're multiplying, and they're, and they're filling the earth. Secondly, what we see is that mankind is inventing. He's, he's making tents. They're creating music. They're starting to do metallurgy, stewarding the resources of this earth. Third, mankind is building. They're building cities and dwelling in them. It's all a part of filling and subduing and exercising dominion, and it's all good. People doing the work that God actually made people to do. Fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. It's all good stuff until we find the fourth thing that's happening here. Yeah, mankind's multiplying, inventing, building. Mankind's also spiraling spiraling out of control, because six generations on from Cain, humans haven't pulled up out of the nosedive. They've gone into a tailspin, and what we're looking at here, as we're looking for an offspring of Eve who's going to crush the Satan, all we find is Lamech, (laughs) and Lamech is not the kind of guy who's going to be crushing any serpents anytime soon. Lamech is 11 times more likely to give in to the allure of sin than Cain, his forefather, and he brags about it. He's a man who spurns God's good order of marriage in order to introduce, to our knowledge, uh, polygamy into the world. He's a man who boasts about his flippant violence, who brags that he's 11 times worse than Cain, not just seven times, but 77 times. In other words, in these last nine verses, mankind— is continuing to act like mankind in the good ways. Cultural mandate, multiplying, filling the earth, subduing. But then also in the bad, bad ways, frankly going from bad to worse. Mankind continues to act like mankind. And mankind will only ever continue to act like mankind. But also God is going to continue to act like God. Praise God. Because Eve bears here another son. And she says that God has appointed for me another offspring. His name is Seth. Seth has a son named Enosh. Looking elsewhere, we know that Enosh has a son named Mahalalel. Mahalalel has a son named Jared, and on and on and on. The problem is that every single one of these men keeps acting like men. They're a lot more like their fathers than we would be cared, than we would care to admit. Sin is crouching at their door, and none of them rule over it. Sin is crouching at that door and, and all of them give into it. But the good news again, God keeps acting like God. He's a God of grace upon grace and upon grace, and the pages of your Bible tell the story of his grace again and again and again, until in his grace he sends a man who comes who does not act like a man. A man who comes who, though sin crouches at his door, he alone rules over it. That descendant of Eve, that man is a, name, is a man named Jesus. And though the serpent uses a man named Judas to rise up and kill him, to turn him over to the Romans who would nail him to a cross, this was the serpent's greatest tactical error in the history of his battle against the descendants of the women. For in Adam all die, so also in Christ, in Jesus, shall all be made alive. It's 1 Corinthians 15. For he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. We, all, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. At the cross... When Jesus Christ was nailed to it, the offspring of Eve, who was also God in the flesh, he bruised the serpent's head. He gave the serpent the mortal wound that mankind had been looking for and waiting for and praying for ever since Genesis 3.15. We're going to celebrate that that moment here in a minute. But if what Paul says is true in Romans chapter 16, verse 20— That ancient serpent will one day be defeated once and for all when Jesus Christ comes again. What Paul says is this, that the God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath your feet. Underneath your feet. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. So from whence does hope spring in the garden? It comes from the grace of God. Uh, where does, where do we find hope in this first story of, of murder? We find hope in the grace of God. Where do we find hope when mankind continues to spiral down the toilet? We find hope in the grace of God, in the man who comes to do what no man before or since has ever been able to do, to fulfill the law, to live the perfect life, to crush the serpent. And where does our future hope spring? We have hope in the grace of God, that the work he started, he will finish. The God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath your feet. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your grace amazes us. It is truly amazing grace. And it's something that we see around every corner in the Bible. And if we have eyes to see it around every corner in this life, grace upon grace. You haven't stopped giving us grace upon grace. And for that, we say, Hallelujah, what a Savior. And Father, now as we turn our attention to communion to celebrate and to remember the most amazing, the most perfect act of grace the world has ever seen, your death on the cross. God, we pray that our hearts would be primed to remember it, but also to celebrate it. To revel in the hope that we have in your finished work. And to be reminded of the reality that our hope is also future on the day that you, Jesus, come back and finish the work you started. We love you, Lord. We praise you. We turn our attention to worship you in that way now. In Jesus' name. Amen.